All right, well, this, as, as you know, if you were here last week, this is part two of a two-part sermon series on the topic of discipline. Was a was a sermon request that I received from a group of people who sent an email. So last week we considered God's discipline of his children, how God disciplines us. This week we're looking at church discipline and how that relates to God's discipline. I don't know, obviously this is a big room with a lot of people in it, with a lot of past experiences that you bring with you wherever you go. And I don't know what your past experience is with church discipline. I don't know what your background is with this topic. Maybe, maybe church discipline for you has been a lifeline, has been a blessing. Maybe, maybe for you personally or for someone that you know, church discipline was the means by which God grabbed a hold of you and brought you back home after a season of wandering from him. If that was your experience or one of your loved ones, then you will have very positive feelings about church discipline. You will view it as a means of grace, as an expression of love, and as a blessing, if that's been your experience. But maybe that hasn't been your experience. Maybe church discipline, either for you personally or for someone you know or in a church you were a part of, was done in a, in a harsh way, in a hurtful way, and if you've experienced that, well, then maybe you have bad feelings. Maybe you have negative feelings about the whole idea of church discipline. Either way, it really doesn't matter what you think. And it really doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what the Bible teaches, and that is what we're going to consider today. What does the Bible teach about church discipline? As a quick review, I'm going to remember the three questions that we asked and tried to answer last week. Last week, first, we asked the question, what is God's motivation for disciplining his children? Why does he do it? And the answer we found was love. Bottom line, love. God loves us so much that he will not simply sit back with indifference if we rebel against his good and holy law. He disciplines us in order to bless us and in order to promote our ongoing growth and health. Second question, what form does God's discipline of his children take? The answer that we saw as we looked in the Bible is that God's discipline takes many different expressions within the Bible. Everything from sending poisonous serpents to bite people, to sending a great fish to swallow someone, to giving people up to their sinful desires and allowing them to act on those sinful desires. All of those are expressions and many more of God's discipline. And third, how do we know if something we're experiencing is God's discipline or if it's just the result of living in a fallen world? And the answer we found was, well, we can ask God what he's up to, what he's doing. We can search our own hearts. We can invite the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts and we can trust that God will reveal his will to us as we seek it. Well, those were the three points and the three questions last week. This morning, one final question about discipline. How does God's discipline relate to church discipline? The obvious answer to that question is that just as God's discipline is loving and restorative, ultimately done in order to bless the person being disciplined, and it's a means of grace, so too church discipline should be loving 
and restorative. It should be done in order to bless the person being disciplined and used as a means of grace. In order to see how that plays out in real life, we're going to look at an example in the Bible when Paul exhorted the church at Corinth to practice church discipline. That happens in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5. I invite you to turn there now. No doubt it will be projected, but I do want to encourage you to have your Bibles open and on your laps this morning so that you can look at what I'm saying and why I'm saying it. If what I'm saying is what the Bible teaches, then we're called to believe it and to obey it without reservation, whether or not it's our personal preference. And if what I'm saying is not what the Bible teaches, then it doesn't matter what I think, right? My opinion means nothing. You are perfectly welcome to disagree with my opinion. In fact, you should. I'm wrong about things all the time. But the Word of God is never wrong. The Word of God means everything. And we do not have the freedom to disagree with that. And so I invite you to search this passage and see what God has to say about church discipline. I'll read it. It's 1 Corinthians in chapter 5. And then I'll pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding it. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding 
this passage. Holy Father, we thank you that we've come to the special moment in the life of a believer when we are gathered at your table, when we are seated before the feast of your word. We do believe that your word will endure forever, that it is true and right and good, that you have given it to us to guide us and to bless us, that we might know you and love you and follow in your ways. And now we've come to a painful part of your word. It hurts to read these words. It hurts to think about them being relevant to our situation and implying them here. And so we pray for guidance. We pray for grace. We pray for hearts that are humble and loving. We pray that you'd help us to understand your word and apply it. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, I think the first thing that we want to do that you often always want to do when you read the Bible is to try to understand it in its own context, what was being said at that time in that situation, and then bring it to bear on our situation today. So the situation in Corinth that warranted these words from Paul to their church is that a man is having sexual relations with his mother or his stepmother, we're not sure. Verse 1 says it's actually reported that, that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. Someone has his father's wife. The phrase, his father's wife, might imply that the woman is not his biological mother. Most people think that. It might imply that the father is a widower or he's divorced and he's remarried. Uh, the father might be alive or he might be dead. We don't know. Paul doesn't say. Uh, but, but in any case, none of those differences would change the sinfulness of what's happening. What he says is the son has the father's wife. And Paul calls that situation sexual immorality. He uses that phrase twice in this passage. The Greek word, it's one word behind that phrase. The word is porneia. Porneia, it's the word from which we get our word pornography. It means any kind of sexual immorality, any kind at all. Any sexual actions that fall outside of the bounds of biblical teaching is porneia, it's sexual immorality. And this immorality that Paul's pointing out in this passage, it's not a one-time act a one-time sin followed by broken-hearted repentance. If it was that, Paul would have written different words into this situation, right? There's grace for that. There's grace for when we sin and stumble. But it's not that. Paul specifically uses a, a, an ongoing present tense active verb, right? He says someone has his father's wife currently and actively, not had, but has. There is no repentance, there is no fleeing from this sin. It's actively being engaged in. Not only is there no repenting on behalf of the sinner, but within the congregation, there's arrogance and boasting, Paul says. They're proud. They're proud. Verse 2 shows us how the church responded to the immorality in the church, and it also shows how they should have responded. It says you become arrogant, you're proud, but you should have mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. Now think, of, think for a minute about Paul's assessment of that situation. Consider the diagnosis of the problem at Corinth 
is exactly the opposite from the diagnosis in many churches today. What, what do I mean? Well, well, let's be honest here. Church discipline not only doesn't happen in most churches today, it, it doesn't, but it's also, in many churches, it's viewed as kind of an old, antiquated, harsh thing that happened way back then, but thankfully we don't do it anymore. And it's generally a good and compassionate thing that we've outgrown that. We don't do that anymore. That was back in the old days. And today, when discipline doesn't happen, right, when churches say, no, we're not going to do that, we're not going to go there, usually the diagnosis is that, well, we're, we're, we're too humble and we're too loving to discipline others, right? Who are we to point the finger at others? Who are we to judge others? Who are we to cast the first stone? And so a supposed humility becomes the basis of tolerance of immorality in the church, right? We're just going to look the other way and let it go, because who are we to judge? On the other hand, if a church does actually practice church discipline, it's often diagnosed as, well, that, they're a bunch of legalistic, prideful, arrogant, judgy people, right? Can you believe that the people in that church think that they're so great? that they actually have the audacity to judge and discipline their members when they engage in ongoing unrepentant sin. And yet, in this passage, you have to see this, Paul flips that critique exactly on its head. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, refusing to practice church discipline is the height of moral arrogance. It's prideful that you're not disciplining this person. And engaging in church discipline, when it's done right, is an expression of love and humility. It's humble to actually engage in the practice of church discipline, and it's arrogant to refuse to. That's what Paul says. If you follow Paul's argument here, he says that by refusing to discipline an unrepentant sinner, the church has become arrogant, proud, boastful. People in the church were actually boasting in the immorality. Now, I don't think they were boasting because a member of their church was sleeping with his mother-in-law. That would be a weird thing to boast about. But I think that they were boasting about their level of tolerance. Look at us. Look at how kind-hearted and enlightened we are. We politely look the other way and smile benevolently instead of confront people about their sexual immorality. And Paul says, you've got to be absolutely kidding me. Your response is exactly the opposite of what it is supposed to be. Instead of boasting and celebrating your tolerance, you should be mourning and grieving. You should be brokenhearted. Sin should break your heart and sin should move you to action. He says the one who is engaging in this willful sin should be removed from your midst. Not in a spirit of judging, but with a heart of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Remember who said that? Why did he say that? Because mourning is the proper response to the horror of sin. True brokenness and sorrow for sin is the basis for church discipline. True biblical brokenheartedness does not say, well, I could never judge someone like that. True biblical brokenness humbly takes 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 13 seriously and submits to the authority of God's Word. Right? A passage that tells us, look again at 1 Corinthians 
5 and starting in verse 9. I, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I told you this already. I told you. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world, right? They're everywhere, okay? I'm not telling you to never have contact with people like that. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, a member of the church, a member of God's family, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What? Well, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Notice what he's saying there. Church discipline is for the church. It's not so that the church can look outward and judge the world. It's not so that the church can try to apply biblical standards to people who don't even believe that the Bible's God's word. Why would we do that? It's for members of God's household. People who have agreed to submit to God's authority and who have subsequently rebelled against that authority. See, true humility doesn't come to God and tell God how to be gracious. It treats the Bible as God's word and it seeks to obey it all with fear and trembling. And in this case, obedience requires the church in Corinth to administer church discipline to an unrepentant sinner. In fact, the church is told to judge the man. Specifically, told to judge the man and to purge him from the congregation and deliver him to Satan. Is the church supposed to judge people? How would you answer that? Is the church supposed to judge people? I think... I think Everyone here would instinctively say, no, of course not. What? No. But, but he explicitly tells the church to judge in this passage. These days it's very popular for us to say we should never judge anyone ever under any circumstances. But 1 Corinthians 5.12 tells the church to judge. Not to judge the world, not to judge those outside the church, but to judge those inside. So what is going on there? Well, normally when we say we're not supposed to judge, what we're thinking, we mean it, and what we're thinking is of the words of Jesus when he says, judge not, lest you be judged. And what we take that to mean is that it is unchristlike, it is unchristian, it is ungodly for a believer to judge others and to think that they're somehow better than others. It doesn't honor the Lord, it doesn't honor the other people. Christians of all people should be aware of their own sins, should be aware of their own failure to live up to God's standard, should be aware of their own need for a Savior. And in that sense, we don't judge anybody else. We don't think that we're better than anybody else because we are fully aware of our own failures and our own shortcomings, right? I know my sins better than I know anybody's sins. And I don't think I'm better than anybody else, trust me. Right? In that sense, of course, we never judge others. Never. But if by judge we mean that we're supposed to hold our lives up to the perfect standard of God's law and judge, make an assessment, make a judgment, we're definitely supposed to do that. And when we're in community with one another, then the Bible is clear that we're supposed to do that for one another, to encourage one another to walk the path of biblical 
faithfulness. And you cannot do that without making some judgments, which is exactly what Paul tells us to do here. He says, bring God's word to bear on your lives and on your church and make judgments, make assessments. So what possible good could come of judging someone and putting that person out of the church? That sounds so harsh. That sounds so legalistic. How could that be good? Well, I can think of three, three good things that can come out of that, three ways that that action would actually bless. Here they are. Brokenhearted church discipline is good for the health of the sinner. It's good for the sinner to receive discipline. Number two, brokenhearted church discipline is good for the health of the church. It's good for the church when the church practices church discipline. Number three, brokenhearted church discipline is good for the witness of the church to the world. It's good for our witness. Okay, a few words about each of those. Church discipline is good for the one being disciplined. Keep in mind the passage that we read last week from Hebrews 12, which reminded us in that passage that all discipline seems painful at the time. Right, so it's painful. How is it good? Well, Paul makes that explicit in verse 5 here in our passage. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That sounds bad. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Right? The so that explains why we would do something that would cause pain. Right? The reason is so that it will result in spiritual life and health. So that the individual will turn from his sin and repent and be reconciled to the Lord. Right? And we don't need to belabor this point because we all know how discipline works. You provide a negative consequence to a negative action in the hopes that the person will see the folly of their ways and turn from them. And why is that needed? Well, it's not always needed. It's not. Oftentimes the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts about our own sin, enables us to repent and turn from our sin without the need for discipline. But sometimes sin sears our conscience so that we no longer feel convicted by our own sin, and we become what the Bible calls hard-hearted. In which case, being on the receiving end of loving church discipline may in fact be the thing that God uses to break our hearts, to soften our hearts, and to turn us back to Him. And anyone that I've ever met who's been on the receiving end of that kind of broken-hearted discipline and who has subsequently repented and returned to the Lord and returned to the church knows firsthand what a blessing church discipline can be. I know people like that. I know that that's what they think. I know how grateful they are for the love expressed to them through church discipline. Does it always work out that way? No. Sometimes church discipline is done in a harsh or judgmental or unloving way. And sometimes it drives people even further away from the church. Let's be honest, that happens sometimes. And sometimes, even when it's done right, loving and brokenhearted, the person still doesn't repent and doesn't return to the church. But that's always the goal of church discipline. It's not punitive, it's restorative. It's not punishment, it's meant to bless. It's meant to restore, it's meant to heal. 
All right, so that's the benefit of discipline on the sinner. It is designed to help them see their sin and turn from their sin and return to the Lord. If you are the sinner, if you are the one that has wandered from the Lord, you want this. Trust me. It's not fun at the time. You don't want it in the moment. Nobody wants it in the moment, but trust me, you want this. This is love. This is grace. This is mercy. If God uses this to bring you back to him, you want it. Nothing is more important than your relationship with the Lord. It is worth causing momentary pain if it results ultimately in restoration and blessing and life and health. It's worth it. It's good. Okay, the second good thing that comes out of the practice of church discipline, it's good for the health of the whole church, the whole body. Sin is both confusing and contagious. It spreads. When we practice church discipline, we preserve and protect the congregation. That's the point of Paul's metaphor about leaven and batches of dough. That's what he's talking about there. Right? He said, do you not know that a little leaven, leavens the whole batch? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you might be a new batch, as you are. Throughout the Bible, le- leaven almost always symbolizes sin. Not always, but almost always. In this case, it definitely does. And Paul is saying that if you simply allow sin to go uncontested in your congregation, if you just look the other way and say nothing, it will spread. It will grow. It will contaminate. It will confuse. If people just smile politely and look the other way and enforce a don't ask, don't tell policy, Your church will be a greenhouse for sin and it will thrive and it will grow like kudzu throughout your congregation. Do you know about kudzu? Have you been, have you driven through the, through the south, through through the states in the south and seen kudzu? It's everywhere. It's, it's out of control, right? It just, it grows. You drive, you're driving along a, a, a highway or a small road and the ditches are full of kudzu and it grows It climbs up telephone poles and it climbs across the wires and it climbs up trees and smothers them. And the only way to get rid of it is to cut it out and remove it, remove the roots. That's how Paul is saying the church should handle unrepented sin. Get rid of it or it will spread. That's what he says. Now, I expect you've noticed I always try to use that modifier unrepentant. Unrepentant sin. We're not talking about kicking people out of church for sinning. Everyone sins. Everyone in this room sins. Literally, no one would be a member of any church if you got kicked out for sinning. We all sin. This is the whole point. It's why we need a Savior. Church discipline is only administered in cases of ongoing, unrepentant sin. And partly that's to bring conviction and repentance to the sinner, and partly that's to protect the congregation from the destructive effects of sin. Right? Think how confusing it is for a young person who sees a member of their church family engaging in unrepentant sin, and no one's saying anything about it. Is that behavior okay or is it not okay? I don't know. I thought it was not okay, but he's doing it, and no one's saying anything, so maybe it is okay. That's confusing. What helps our young people and what helps all of us is to walk according to the clear guidelines of Scripture and to encourage one another to do that. 
that protects the health of the church. The healthiest families, you know this, the healthiest families are the ones where the rules are clearly articulated and consistently enforced, right? So the kids know what's expected of them, and they know what kind of response they're going to get if they disobey. Clearly articulated, consistently enforced. The same is true in churches. All right, finally, not only does the faithful practice of church discipline promote the health and healing of the sinner, promote the health of the church family, but it also protects the church's witness to the rest of the world. Paul makes that point early in the passage. The world is watching. The world is asking, does Christ make any difference at all in the lives of those Christians? Are they any different than the rest of us? People are asking that question when they look at the church. The church is supposed to stand out, not blend in. That's our witness. We are the aroma of Christ on earth. To some people, that will smell like life and health. To some people, that will smell like death. But what it shouldn't smell like is the rest of the world. The world looks at us if the, if, if, if the world looks at the church and they can't see any difference between the church and the world, then why would they be interested in what we have? If we have the same addictions and the same divorce rate and the same tendency towards selfishness and the same sexual ethics and the same use of words in the same way, in the same way we spend our money, then what is our witness to the world? Join the church because we're just like everyone else? And we don't care how you act as long as, 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 long as you show up at 10 o'clock on Sunday and wear nice clothes? That's not our witness. We are the family of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We are the people in whom the Spirit of God has taken up residence. We are the body of Christ. And we gladly submit ourselves to His authority and we seek to walk according to His precepts and the instructions of the Bible, and we recognize that's not always easy, and we recognize that we are fragile and frail people, and so we walk together, loving and encouraging one another to walk the path of faithfulness, admonishing one another when we get off the path, because the Bible tells us to do that. And that's what we need to show to the world, what real, loving community looks like, what it means to be part of a church family, to orient your life around the house rules of God's family. That's our witness. And when we refuse to practice church discipline, we send a confusing message to the world, proclaiming that God doesn't care about how we act when in fact God cares very much about how we act. So what does faithful practice of church discipline look like? Well, in the case we're looking at in Corinth, Paul tells them, remove the man from among your church and don't associate with them. That is the culmination of church discipline, cutting off fellowship until the individual shows signs of repentance. But it doesn't start there. It builds to that. That's the culmination. In fact, our church order for the CRC gives detailed and explicit instructions about how we're supposed to go about enforcing church discipline. Our denomination has forms that we're supposed to read for these exact circumstances. The implication there is that healthy churches, sooner or later, are going to have to administer church discipline. And it's a process, and it has many stages. I'm not going to read them all right now. 
but there is a, 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 I'll read you the form for the first announcement of church discipline. Here's what's supposed to happen. An elder is supposed to come up before the congregation and say these words. Beloved in the Lord, since we are responsible for one another as fellow members of the body of Jesus Christ, we are deeply concerned when a member of the body wanders from the Christian way and does not repent. Therefore, it is our painful duty as office bearers of this church to inform you that one of our fellow members has sinned and given offense against God and his church and remains unrepentant to this day despite our prayers and admonitions. Thus, we have suspended his participation in the sacraments, the signs and seals of his relationship with our Savior and with one another, and we also have suspended the other privileges of communicant membership. At his profession of faith, he promised to honor and submit to the authority of the church. Let us all pray that our brother may respond positively to the admonitions of the church and return to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in grace and faithfulness desires this brother's repentance. You'll notice those words are spoken with a tone of love, not of judgment. These actions are taken with a desire for repentance and reconciliation. Members are reminded that we are in fact one body and that we are in fact responsible for one another. We are our brothers and sisters keeper and we are encouraged to pray for the individual who's under discipline. The discipline includes not being able to celebrate the Lord's Supper, losing other membership privileges as well. Notice it does not mean the individual cannot attend church. It does not say that. They are encouraged to keep attending church in the hopes that they might turn from their sinful choices. That's stage one. The second announcement comes only if the individual persists in unrepentant and ongoing sin. I won't read it, but it basically informs the congregation that the, the admonitions and the prayers have not yet produced evidence of repentance. And therefore, if the brother or sister does not repent, it might be necessary, if this continues like this, to exclude them from the church of Jesus Christ. That's announcement number two. It's, it's, it's words that are sorrowful and loving and hopeful. And then there's a third announcement, which says, which if, if things continue on, with sadness of heart, we report that our loving admonitions and prayers still have not led him to demonstrate any sign of repentance and faith. And then it goes on to say that uh, we find it necessary to proceed to exclude this brother from, or sister from membership in the church of the Lord if they do not show repentance by, and then a date is selected, they do not show repentance by June 15, then to our deep sorrow, he or she will be excluded from membership. If any member of the church knows any reason why this should not be done, please inform the consistory. Let us all continue to pray for this person. Then finally, after all those steps have been taken, those announcements have been made, the conversations have been had, the prayers have been prayed, finally, if the person is still not repentant, there is a form for the exclusion from membership, which I will not read now, but the form is full of prayers for grace. It does, it is a declaration of excommunication as an expression of discipline, but it is also full of hope 
that one day this person will return and be received and welcomed back in the fellowship. As you can see, there's no tone of rejoicing. There's no tone of judging or acting superior or better than anyone else. There's no pretending that we're not all sinners. We know we are. There is a simple biblical recognition that we are responsible for one another. And when we see someone willfully walking off the path of obedience, love requires us to say something and to do something. The Bible requires us to say something and to do something. And to refuse to practice church discipline is uncaring and unloving. All right, but we've already acknowledged that we're all sinners. So what types of sins qualify for for church discipline. Well, like I've been saying all along, it's simple. It's, it's the ongoing, unrepentant ones. Those are the ones that qualify for church discipline. I'll give you one real-life example from a previous church that I was at, not, not in this country, nobody you would know. Uh, we had a member of our church who, who decided that he would open a pornography shop uh, just along the highway there. And uh, his argument was, well, I don't see what the problem is. It's a perfectly legal business, so why should it affect my membership in the church? He said that to us. To which we responded, well, just because it's legal doesn't make it good or God-honoring. Pornography shops are designed to cause people to sin. They dishonor the Lord. They teach us to dishonor one another by turning fellow image bearers into objects. And if you're going to insist on running that shop, then we're going to have to insist on administering church discipline. And what he said was, well, you know what? If I don't open the shop, someone else will. Because there's a void and it's going to be filled. People want this. And we said, maybe that's right, maybe it's not. But we are responsible for one another within the church. We are not responsible for the actions of people outside the church. And we love you way too much to sit back and do nothing while you walk off the path of obedience. Unrepentant and ongoing sin calls for church discipline. That's one example. I'm happy to report that that example ended well and ended in repentance and a return to fellowship and a shutting down of that shop. But the bottom line is that unrepentant sin is self-harm. It's you hurt yourself when you engage in unrepentant sin, and out of love for one another, we cannot sit back and do nothing and say nothing when we see fellow family members hurting themselves. It's not loving and it's not biblical to refuse to practice church discipline. It's also not good for the whole health of the whole church when the church doesn't take a clear stand against sin. It's confusing and it allows the leaven of sin to spread throughout the church and it's not good for our witness to the rest of the world. The Bible is clear. The church should stand out from the rest of the world and the faithful, loving, broken-hearted practice of church discipline is one of the ways that we do in fact stand out. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we don't want to practice church discipline here because we don't like the thought of an actual situation with an actual brother or sister engaged in unrepentant sin. That's painful to think about. We don't want that scenario to unfold here. But if it does, I do pray that you would give us the strength, the discipline, and the love of one another to engage in gracious merciful, loving, broken-hearted church discipline. Give us the courage 
to walk that path if it is what is required of us. We see the way that you handled a situation in Corinth. We receive those instructions and we pray that we would walk according to them here. Lord, I pray and ask your protection upon our church family. I pray that we would find deep joy in walking together in love for you and in love for one another of the path of faithful obedience and help us to encourage one another as we journey to heaven together. In Christ's name, amen.